This week, uh, Americans will celebrate Independence Day, the day the United States declared its independence from Great Britain, July 4, 1776. About 250 years ago, I I was in third grade when we celebrated the bicentennial. And uh, if the Lord tarries and I'm still alive in a few years, we're going to celebrate the 250th anniversary, which probably has a name. I just don't know what it is, but uh, we're coming up on 250 years. And, and, And this time, as you know, was this great struggle Uh, and emotion, and commitment, and self-sacrifice in our nation. Many men and women gave their lives to purchase our freedom, never living to celebrate the victory that now we have the privilege of taking for granted if we want to. But the spirit of that age lives on in many of the words and sayings that came out of the American Revolution. For example, somebody says, I only regret that, do you know how that goes? I have what? One life to give for my country or to lose for my country. That's what Captain Nathan Hale said in September of 1776, right before he was hanged by the British for being a spy. Or how about this one? Give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry gave this famous speech at the assembly in Richmond, Virginia. And there's some debate about the exact words of Patrick Henry's speech. Historians always mess with our reality, right? Uh, but liberty or death, one way or another, was this rallying cry of the revolution that we still understand today. And we still know. Or how about this one? I have not yet begun to fight. John Paul Jones of the American Navy said this in 1779 during this intense battle with the British ship, the Serapis, and things were not going well for Jones, and the British captain signaled for him to strike his colors and surrender, and this was Jones' reply, and he won that battle. He did not give up, and some of us remember Prescott's words, Don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. This is William Prescott's cry at the Battle of of Bunker Hill on June 17, 1775. And, And the fact that you know these phrases is not actually or necessarily a tribute to how well you have learned your American history. It's rather an indication of the sheer power of the spoken word. These words spoken around 250 years ago in a particular context, they still ring in our ears. They're not some dusty words in the history books. We hear them often. They still inspire us. You realize that? When we hear them, especially when we know why they were spoken and when they were spoken, they actually strengthen us still. They encourage us. They give us resolve. They give us this this sense of honor and sacrifice. And it's really quite remarkable. We're no longer in a battle for independence from Great Britain, but we still derive this this kind of moral fortitude from these words. It's a reminder of the fact that God himself created us in his image with a specific set of abilities. And one of those abilities was our ability to speak. We take it for granted 
But there is something unique and profound that happens when we speak to one another. There's a little saying about words that I've heard all my life, and probably you have too. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is undeniably false. The truth is words can do great harm to us, and they can do great harm to other people. If this were not true, why does God forbid people to use words that are arrogant or hateful or immoral or mean? Left to do their work, words have power to sadden and depress and fill the hearer with a lack of hope or joy. But there's another popular saying about words that you might have heard. Uh, Some people say, if you cannot say something nice, what? Don't say anything at all. This is also antithetical to what God tells us to do in, 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 in his word when it comes to our tongue. We are not told to simply refrain from speaking when we can't think of anything to say unless it's mean. There's no spiritual virtue in that. Rather, God says we are to exercise the gift of speech that he has given to us to be a blessing to others, just like he blessed the world when he spoke it into existence and then pronounced it good. The Bible says that we are to say things to encourage people, to show grace, to show kindness, to speak loving words, helpful words, generous words, true words. And this is because our spoken words have the power to impact, to influence, to direct, to bless or destroy. Your words may not impact whole generations of people hundreds of years after you utter them, but they certainly have an impact on those around you. And James, as we've seen, understands all of this. And he knows that if his scattered flock that he's writing to is going to learn to live up to their faith, to, to flesh out on the outside what they say they believe on the inside, then they must be warned about the use of their tongues. So, back to our text. James begins, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This is not merely because teachers in particular are expected to practice what they preach, but also because they are often using their tongues to practice their craft. And that little instrument in their mouths that forms words represents an occupational hazard because the tongue is so difficult to control morally. So much so, in fact, that James goes on in verse 2 to say, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. If you can learn to, to use your tongue as an instrument of righteousness and obedience so that your tongue is continually a blessing to others and a glory to God, glorifying our Father, James says, you can do this in every other area of your life. You can do it with every other part of your body if you can master it with your tongue. Master your tongue and you've mastered sanctification. So why is James so concerned about bridling the tongue? Why does he put so much weight here? Why is the tongue in particular so difficult to control? That's the question we asked last week. 
And we saw that James offers three essential reasons that we must all bridle our tongues diligently. Not just teachers, that's his jumping off point. But if we're going to live up to our faith, we all have to learn to bridle our tongues diligently. The first two of these three essential reasons we covered last week, and I'll just do a, 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 just a fly-by review of them to, to get us set up for the third one this morning. First of all, James is concerned about the tongue because the tongue is deceptively powerful. It's little in size, but it can do really, really powerful things. And that's the truth he illustrates in verses three through five. He says, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. A little bit, but it directs this whole horse. Verse four, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Basically the same point he's making here, only he also adds the idea wherever the will of the pilot directs. And we asked the question last week, who's directing the tongue? Who has control of your mouth? And then his point here is in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. But then James introduces one additional illustration, and his message about the tongue turns dark. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So what he's saying here is, isn't that the tongue is simply a powerful instrument with a, with a neutral impact. He's saying it's a, a powerful little instrument that has a potentially dangerous impact, a potentially evil influence. Because the next words in verse 6 are, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. In other words, Any unrighteousness that we can see in the world can be expressed through the tongue. Think of any evil in the world. Think of any sin, any regular sin, any gross or degrading sin. Let your imagination go. You can't think of one that cannot find an expression somehow through the words we speak. Talking in this way, speaking about this sin, And the tongue is prone to wander in that direction. And that's what introduces the second essential reason James says we need to bridle our tongue. And that is the tongue is inherently evil. And last week we spent some time looking closely at James's unflattering portraits of the tongue. There's actually two of them. Two unflattering portraits of the tongue. First of all, he says our tongue is a hellish fire that consumes our life. He says, a tongue is a, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, our bodily parts, our meloi is the word, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And the idea is the, the chief person associated with hell, which is the devil himself. So James says, and this is really important to grasp, that when we sin with our tongue, what is really happening is that our tongue is giving expression to the sin that is already dwelling in our hearts, which is due to the corruption of the devil going all the way back to the fall. And when our tongue gives expression to that sin that is in our heart, it's like a fire that sets our life ablaze in two ways. First, the sins of our tongue uh, stain our whole body. 
which means we become sinful before God and we need to, to confess our sin and forsake it and come back into fellowship with God as a believer. And second, if we do not confess and forsake our sin, seeking forgiveness from God and for those, from those whom we have sinned against, then we begin to form patterns of sin because of our tongue that sets on fire the whole course of our life. Unconfessed lying leads one to become a liar who lies habitually, who can rarely tell the truth, who begins to believe the lies he or she is telling. And soon this person has a very difficult time discerning truth from error, truth from fiction. Unconfessed immoral speech, dirty joking, locker room talk, leads one to become a person who's constantly turning comments into something sensual or suggestive. Someone may say to this person, you need to get your mind out of the gutter. And actually, that's not far from the truth. The Bible would say, you need to get your heart out of the gutter. By confessing sins of immoral speech and using your tongue for for saying what is right and good. Because the wicked tongue has set the whole life ablaze. Unconfessed griping and complaining from an ungrateful heart leads to a life that is set ablaze with bitterness. You see a person who just seems to be mad at the world. They're always seeing the darkest side of things or appear to always be seething. James would tell you what has happened. He would say, based on verse 6, the sin of ingratitude in the heart found expression in the hellish, hellish fire of the tongue, which set the whole life ablaze with bitterness. On the other hand, just as a side reference, do you realize how many sins of the tongue are, are conquered simply by a grateful heart, a heart of gratitude to the Lord? You will stamp out those fires of unrighteousness in a big hurry if you will simply acknowledge the goodness and grace of God in your life in every area and thank him daily for what he has done for you. But James warns us about the tongue because he says it is inherently evil. And this is seen in the portrait of the tongue that sets ablaze the life from a heart that harbors sin. And that is why Jesus warns in Matthew 12, we looked at this last week, that one comes out of our mouth is what corrupts us. Every one of us, therefore, should take very seriously what comes out of our mouth as a window to the heart so that we can deal with what is in our heart and confess and forsake those sins. We shouldn't dismiss what comes out of our mouth. We should look at it and say, okay, what does that mean for me then? But there's a second unflattering portrait that James paints in these verses in 7 and 8. I'm still, I'm just reviewing here from last week. Uh, James suggests that the tongue is also a poisonous reptile that no human can tame. Because he says in verses 7 and 8, For every beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I think that James is at least depicting the tongue as an untamable animal. I think he's uh, referring specifically to a reptile because he, he suggests that, it, that this, this tongue lashes out, strikes out with poison. God blessed Adam and Eve and the human race and told them to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the, the, the birds of the air and every creeping thing that is on the ground. And through God's blessing, that is exactly what mankind has done. 
We have tamed the beasts of the world. But there is still one animal over which the human race has not mastered dominion. An animal that no one has yet tamed, James says. And this reptile is unpredictable. It can lash out and poison. It can poison people's hearts through discouragement and unkindness. It can poison relationships. And by this point, reading through James' text, all of us are starting to get a little frustrated of how unpositive James seems to be about the tongue. Doesn't he have anything good to say? And we start thinking, is there anything I can do about my tongue? The situation looks really bleak. But as we pointed out last week, grammatically, James goes out of his way to say what he says here in verse 8. No human being can tame the tongue. We can't tame it, but God can tame it. The Lord can give us strength. The Holy Spirit can sanctify our tongues because he sanctifies our hearts. We have to confess and return to a path of obedience. When we give the Lord our hearts, we also give him our tongues. And God can change us. Now, this brings us then to the point where we left off last week. And we just have one more point to cover this morning. James says that we must bridle our tongues diligently for three essential reasons. The tongue is deceptively powerful. It's inherently evil. And finally, the tongue is hypocritically brutal. Hypocritically brutal. In other words, the tongue can pretend that we are one thing when really we're actually something else. Our tongues are morally ambidextrous, two-faced, double-tongued, Pay careful attention to what James says here. He says, starting in verse 9, with it, that's with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. Bless you, Father. Thank you, Lord. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. They're made in God's image. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. James says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Of course, James is asking these questions where the response is no, no. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water, he says. And he ends it right there. And that's the end of the passage. These verses are at the heart of James's message in the entire letter. Living up to your faith. He, he's getting at the essence of the whole letter of James here. He's already told us back in chapter 1, verse 8, that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, remember? And by the end of the chapter, chapter 1, he's telling us that we need, need to be hearers of the word, and, and, or we need to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. Your faith is not genuine, he says, if it's not accompanied by evidence of that faith. You can't say one thing and then do another. And in the beginning of chapter 2, he says, you can't gather as Christians and, and, and here comes this rich guy that everybody likes. And oh, I'm, we're going to give that guy preferential treatment. And you can sit here in this place of honor. But then somebody comes in who's very poor and we're like, oh, you stand over there. I don't even want to see you. You, know? you. you can watch from a distance. 
James gets on to people who do that kind of thing. He says it's hypocritical. And what he's saying here is that this is hypocritical. It's the same message here in verse 9. He says, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of our Lord and Father. And keep in mind, James is talking to God-fearing Jewish believers who had embraced their Messiah, Jesus, prior to their faith, or or, 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 uh, prior to their, their coming into the church, and then they're scattered throughout the world. And when they were Jews practicing their Judaism, and probably even now they were still following this tradition, they would pray to God three times a day. That's what they did in the temple all the time. Even when the temple was destroyed, they could continue to pray three times a day to God. We know that Daniel did, does this in the book of Daniel, but he's not, Dan, it wasn't Daniel's bright idea. He was doing what all good Jews did, looking toward Jerusalem, praying three times a day. And, and these prayers were set prayers. There were certain things they would pray for. They had this prayer list. And the, many of them were prayers of blessing. And so James is saying to his flock, I, you guys do this all the time. You, three times a day, you pray and you bless God with your, with your lips and you say these wonderful things to God with your tongue. The word bless is the common word eulogeo, uh, 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 where we get our word eulogy. It means to honor and praise and celebrate the person receiving the blessing. So here's one of James's scattered flocks standing three times a day with, with arms up. This is, this is their prayer posture back then. This is what lifting holy hands looks like in, in, in the scripture. And, and, and they're going through the habit of, of, of praying to the Lord, let's say, if they're following that tradition, going through the blessing and, and, and telling God how much he is admired. If, if he was a, a Jew, he may say, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O God, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And he's blessing the Lord and saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But then James says, the next minute you're cursing a human being who has been made in the image of the same God you're praising. Cursing is passing judgment on someone or condemning him. And James is using a very intense verb here. It's not used very often in the New Testament. And likely he's using this intense verb to draw the stark contrast between two forms of speaking, the blessing and the cursing. And James says, this is a great evil because it's a pretense. If if our words come from the heart, how can we have words coming from a heart that is pure and words coming from a heart that is evil at the same time. We can't, he says. And he summarizes in verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Why? Because this is a moral schizophrenia. You cannot use your mouth for blessing God and then turn around and curse people because what you say with your tongue only has one source. Only one heart. And we see this precisely in the illustrations that James goes for. Look at verse 11. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Uh, Fresh is the word glucose, by the way, like glucose. That's where we get the word glucose, sweet. And salt water is better translated bitter water. You can certainly have a sweet spring and you can have a bitter spring and you can have a sweet spring spring that, that turns bitter 
But you cannot have a spring that both produces sweet water and bitter water at the same time because there's only one source for that water. And your tongue is a source. Your tongue's source is your heart. We learned that in, in, the, in the previous section of, of chapter 3. And you can use your tongue to speak as if you have great faith in your heart. You can pray publicly when called upon. And you can stand up with a stained glass voice and lead everyone who hears you to the throne of grace and praise the Lord for his wondrous works and his mercy and his favor. And, and, and by the way, we, we are often led very well to the throne of grace here at Gateway. I appreciate our, our men in particular who, who lead us before the throne. But then later, you can make a snide comment about another brother or sister or talk behind someone's back or rail on someone privately or criticize someone harshly to the face or gossip or belittle. Or in the same manner of the believer's response of the rich and poor person at the beginning of James 2, we can find ourselves guilty of speaking in one way to those who we feel are less in stature than ourselves, and another way to those who impress us who we think are more important. And if you are only willing to show grace and favor and kindness to important people, but it doesn't matter to you the level of grace you show to those who, who you think are less than you are, then you are uh, sinning with your tongue, and it betrays a lack of love in your heart for all people, like James has already told us in his letter, that we need to have love for everyone. And James would say, this should never happen for a believer in Christ. This is not right. This is not how we should live. What this tells you is that your heart is not sweetly submissive to God's will and love toward others. So when you bless God publicly, it's actually a lie because that's not really who you are. James would say, you're not living up to your faith. And James continues to illustrate the same point in verse 12. He says, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? You can tell the kind of tree it is by, by its fruit. You don't find olives on fig trees. You don't pick fi uh, figs from grapevines. So you can tell what kind of person someone is by what comes out of his or her mouth. We might be tempted to say, well, you know, that's really, not really me. I, I don't know why I said that. I don't, I don't know where that came from. No, James is telling us the same thing Jesus tells us in Matthew 12. The tree is known by its fruit. It's known by its fruit. I like walking through the woods with people who know what trees and plants they're looking at because it's fascinating to me. My father-in-law, uh, Joe Anderson, is that way. A lot of you know Joe here. Uh, I used to walk through the woods and think, you know, here's a bunch of trees. <laughs> but then after spending time uh, with Joe on some different properties and we've cleared properties together, um, I'm always looking to see what tree I'm looking at. I don't know them all still, not as well as he does. And I'm sure I'm not getting them right all the times, but Joe would say, well, you know, that's a sawtooth oak or, uh, you know, that's a maple 
or that's a locust tree. And, and he just knows all the varieties of all the trees, especially in the mountains of North Carolina. I was walking our dogs in the woods uh, for a few minutes this past week, and in one of those rare moments uh, when we were doing some normal stuff uh, besides music camp, and I looked down and I saw a little tiny sapling starting to grow, and I said immediately, that's a sassafras tree because they're easy to spot when they're young. They have this very unique shape of the leaves and different kinds of leaves on them. Joe taught me that years ago, and I still remember it. And you know what's funny? No matter where I go, all of the little sassafras trees, uh, sassafras trees are going to shoot out leaves like that. Every one of them. It, it's all the same everywhere you go. And, and the locust trees are going to have a particular kind of bark and shape of the tree. And dogwoods and magnolias are always going to have very unique blooms that you can tell if it's a magnolia bloom or a, or a dogwood bloom. Do you know why we can universally identify every tree? Because the fruit of the tree is consistent. The leaves and part of the tree is consistent. And what reveals to us the kind of tree it is? And in the same way, the person is known by the words, James says by the kind of language that comes from the tongue. Don't justify the sin of your tongue thinking you are the exception to this rule. You're not. When you see that your tongue is speaking in a way that is sinful, lying, tattling, cursing, blasphemy, silly talk, gossip, slander, whispering, backbiting, sowing discord, griping, swearing, filthy or dirty talk, anger, sinful criticism, false accusation, flattery, pride, anger, bragging, cruelty, mean sarcasm, talking back, bitterness or resentment, jealousy or envy. And was like, stop, stop. I know, I know. These are all sins though that the Bible says are sins of the tongue. When we see them, don't say, well, that's not me. I'm not sure where that came from. James tells you where it comes from. Are we going to believe the Bible or not? What we should do is ask God to reveal, okay, what is going on in my heart that would have produced that fruit? And confess the sin of the heart, not merely the sin of the tongue, but ask God to build in you through the grace of Christ by the means of the Spirit, a life that produces the kind of fruit from a heart that is trying to follow God. A heart that manifests itself in words of truth and encouragement and support, and praise, and goodness, and affirmation, and peacemaking, and soft answers, and trust, and holy words, and gratitude, and humility, and pure words, and lovely words, and helpful words, and faithful words, and Christ-honoring words. But don't ignore the fruit. Trust what both Jesus and James say about your tongue. Thank God that he has designed a window into your heart that allows you to be real about what is really going on so that you can grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you can yield in those areas where you need to trust God. Because James finishes by saying this, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And here the word salt is actually the word salt. It's a different word than we saw a little bit earlier. And the word fresh is the same word, sweet. And it's interesting that he ends the whole section with this particular illustration. He doesn't ask any questions either. He just tells us. He's saying, in essence, if you're the, a, a person pardoning salty water, I, I'm sorry, 
if you're the kind of person that's harboring salty water, you've got salty water coming out of your heart. He says, don't get up and try to act like your water is sweet. Don't go on with your words trying to make yourself seem like something you're not for some people and then letting what is really in your heart come out through your tongue when you're with other people. That's not dealing with the water problem or the fruit problem. In fact, that's ignoring what could be a huge spiritual problem. Perhaps even an indication that you do not yet truly know the Lord. James has already dealt with that earlier in the, in, in the letter. Because pure speech, righteous speech, is one of those good works that James talks about in chapter 2 when he says we have to see uh, evidence accompanying faith. Your works do not produce salvation. They never can. There's nothing we can do. It's only on the merits of Christ. But James says if you do have that faith, it's going to reveal itself in these particular ways. So instead, when you realize you have sinned with your tongue, confess your sin to God and thank him for his forgiveness through Christ and by his grace, speak from a heart of genuine faith. Who knows if our words will ever inspire a generation like a Nathan Hale or a Patrick Henry. But the words of these men that I mentioned still inspire and courage uh, inspire courage and and they inspire honor and sacrifice because they come from hearts that were courageous and honorable and sacrificial and selfless our words may not impact a nation or even a generation but listen god has placed in our lives family friends a church community a, a lost world And even if our words will never be famous, they still have a remarkable power to destroy or to uplift, to bless or to curse those around us, to be salt and light in the world with the gospel or to hide it. So let's consider very seriously what comes from our tongue. That first, God may be glorified through a tongue that honors him. And second, that those around us are blessed and encouraged and admonished. After all, what we say we have when we say we have faith in Christ, when we say we have placed our faith in Christ who has transformed our heart to desire and to love what is right and good and true needs to find expression in that direction. And that's what James says it means to live up to our faith. Father, thank you.